Let's turn to Mark chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 13. It's on uh, 789 in the pages around the room, or in the Bibles around the room. And if you don't have a Bible, take the Bible that's on your seat. It's our gift to you. Uh, If there's not one on your seat, there's some in the back, and there's also some in the lobby. And then after I'm done reading the Word of God, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you guys to respond, thanks be to God, and that's simply acknowledging that God chose to speak through us in his own divine way, by choosing man to write the Holy Scriptures. We believe that the Holy Scriptures are truth. So we say thanks be to God because we know that God has interacted with man in a very unique and special way, not only through his word, but his interaction through Jesus Christ. Amen, church? All right, let's read. Mark chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 13. Please stand. I'm going to drink some water this time. All right. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach, uh, teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Joseph, and uh, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do a mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and put uh, on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, um, we come to you this morning, Lord, um, praising your name, Lord. Lord, we ask that through this word that you speak a truth to every single one of us this morning, Lord, that you speak divinely into our lives that uniquely meet us. Uh, Lord God, though, um, above all, Lord, we just ask for a heart that's softened and ears to hear your words, Lord. Lord, in everything we do, let it honor you. Lord God, we give you all might, power, 
and honor and glory, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. And we say all these things in your precious, wonderful, and powerful name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So here we are in the text. Uh, Pretty much up to this point, we see that news about Jesus has been going all over. From healing Peter's mother in the beginning of Mark to healing many more in uh, Capernaum, we saw Jesus healing the leper. We've seen Jesus heal the paralytic man. We've seen Jesus uh, heal the man with a crippled hand. We've also seen Jesus uh, calming the storm with just but a word of his, uh, with a simple word. We've seen Jesus cast out demons and demons bow down to his power. We've seen Jesus heal a woman with an incurable disease. And then last week we saw Jesus resurrect Jairus' daughter from death. So as we've been going through Mark, we could conclude, we can perceive that up to this point, these people that Jesus has been talking to would really not be able to reject the reality of who he is or what Jesus claims to be. God made flesh who came to forgive sins and redeem. But as we read through this text, what we discover is that that saying, seeing is believing, is not what it takes to believe in Jesus. It's not, it's actually the the opposite. You see, when Jesus gives the news of who he is, we see a, a, a clear thing that happens here. Despite clear, observable miracles, they rejected Jesus. It was actually very common to reject Jesus. And the natural approach to Jesus uh, is usually hostility and anger or just an indifference to who he is. Basically saying, I, I just don't believe in this guy. Or I just don't care for Jesus. Or this message is this not for me. You see, the big idea for today is this. Um, rejected and accepted. Rejected and accepted. You see, when we truly follow Jesus, our lives will display his message. But the world will reject you. But Jesus does accept you. Because it's also twofold. Not only are we rejected by the world if we follow Jesus and accepted by Christ, but it's actually a decision we have to make as well. Do we reject Jesus in our lives or do we accept him as Savior in our lives? It's a question we have to ask today. But let's look. Let's follow this message. Let's follow this story here. Um, Here we have in this passage that Jesus is uh, returning home. He's returning to his hometown. And we see two points here today. 
The first is reasoning Jesus away. And the second is uh, Jesus sending out uh, or sending the faithful out. So let's look at the first point, reasoning Jesus away. Verse one, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So let's stop right there. Can we, let's pull up uh, the map. I like to kind of, throughout this sermon series, I like to have us kind of walk through what Jesus had been walking through. So this time on the map, we see that Jesus was in uh, Capernaum. And then from Capernaum, he travels all the way to Nazareth, his hometown. And he brings his disciples with him. So it's, I, I think there was a little scale there. So I think it's, what, what's it say, 15 miles? So it's about 15 miles from Capernaum, maybe a little, a little bit longer. Um, and Nazareth is a pretty small town. It's actually much smaller than Fernley. Uh, you know, Fernley has about 20,000, just about. I don't know if this new census came out, but Fernley has about 20,000 right now um, within this city. And it's small enough to run into each other if we want to or not. I got a little chuckle there. It's small enough. We can frequently run into each other, go into the store. Uh, but it's not, it's in nowhere in comparison to how small Nazareth is, okay? Nazareth is about 150 to 200 people that live there. Pretty small town. So you basically know everybody that lives there. Let's do some math here. Ready? Um, let's just say that the average family in Nazareth is four people within, uh, per household, okay? That would mean there's about 50 families that live in Nazareth. And we know that during this time, they had actually more than four people per household. So we could probably actually assume there's probably like 30. There's probably 30 families that live in Nazareth. So we're talking small, small town. Everybody knows everybody. And let's pull up the next slide here. We'll give a little. So this is a little depiction of Nazareth, very small. Uh, We have the, you know, the center of the city. Um, This would be where Jesus took his disciples to his house. I'm sure his disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, you live here? This small little town. But in this small little town, as Jesus approaches it, he walks into the synagogue to go preach. We have this little, there we go, slide of the synagogue. That was actually, that's most likely what it looked like back then. Um, I think this is a current uh, building that they developed to reenact the actual synagogue in Nazareth. And we see that Jesus enters this synagogue and he has his all these people come in to come listen to him preach and what jesus does is he preaches the radical message that he always preaches repent turn from your sins trusted me as lord so he goes there he goes to this little platform right here and i think they have a little scroll depicted on this too so jesus grabs a scroll he opens it up and it's from isaiah and he reads the scroll from isaiah I'm going to read right here. This is what Jesus reads to the Nazareth people. The spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, after Jesus reads this, he rolls back the scroll. He puts down, and then he says to the Nazareth people, this scripture is fulfilled today, which would have been radical for them to hear. Because what is Jesus doing right here? He is saying he is the promised Messiah. He is God that came to rescue the captives. And what do we see the response right after? Let's keep looking down here in verse 2. First, we see that they were captivated by his teaching. In verse 2, it says, Many of them heard and were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to them or to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, they couldn't deny that Jesus was speaking to them through divine power and wisdom. They couldn't deny Jesus uh, doing these miracles. But yet, even with evidence of who Jesus was, they would not believe. You see, because they knew Jesus. They, they knew him since he was a baby. This is a small town, remember? And this astonishment quickly turns to skepticism. And they begin with a series of questions to discredit Jesus, starting in verse 3. Let's look. In verse 3 it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and uh, Judas and Simon? And are not these his sisters with us? And they took offense to him. See, remember, these people that Jesus is speaking to, this isn't the first time they met Jesus. And these people consisted of his relatives, his aunts, his uncles, and his siblings, and very close family friends. The people that helped change his diapers. And the first attempt to discredit Jesus was their understanding of Jesus's earthly occupation. Let's look. They said, isn't this Jesus a laborer? He's a carpenter. And what did that mean back then? It meant that carpenters had no special education. They didn't study with Pharisees. They were basically saying, Jesus is a nobody. And definitely not qualified to be teaching us anything. Then they move on. They go on. The second attempt to discredit uh, Jesus, they said, and not only is Jesus a carpenter, Jesus is the child of Mary. You see, this would have been a very controversial um, issue among the community even then. Sure, these people have heard rumors about Jesus' div divine conception by the Holy Spirit. But what they are doing here 
they were getting more hostile towards Jesus. You see, this story of Jesus coming into fruition by God himself, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was so far-fetched. They reasoned and they came to a conclusion that Jesus was just a bastard child conceived out of infidelity. And then they, come up, they move on and become even more hostile. It says and their third attempt to discredit Jesus was to expose that he was merely just a man. Saying, look, Jesus, not only are you a laborer, not only are you a bastard child, but your family member's right next to us. You're just merely a man. You're not God and you are not divine. So to sum it up, their reasoning and their uh, rationalizing Jesus and coming to a conclusion was this. Jesus is a poor, uh, a poor, dumb laborer that came from Mary sleeping around with another dude. And he was just as human as his siblings. They're, he's not God. And they took, it says right here, and he, they took offense to Jesus, literally disregarding Jesus completely. See, they didn't want to associate with Jesus. He was too scandalous. The message was too scandalous. Jesus was quite embarrassing to them in that moment. See, in the account of Luke, it tells us that this offense that they had towards Jesus grew to wanting to kill him. They were so offended with Jesus that they were determined to throw him off a cliff. Question. Does the scandalous message of Jesus embarrass you? Does associating with Jesus embarrass you? Is Jesus too offensive for you? Here's the reality. Jesus is offensive. The word of God is offensive. You see, the world says, you're a good person. But when we read scripture, it says, no, you are not. None is righteous. That's offensive. The world says, do what you want. Live your own life. Be free. Yay. The word of God doesn't say that. The word of God takes offense to that, actually. You see, God has a specific mandate. He has a specific um, word. Let's just think about marriage. It's offensive to other people. It's offensive to the world. Let's think about God's view on abortion. It's offensive to the world. Are you afraid of associating yourself with God? Are you afraid of associating yourself with Christ? If we're all honest, I would say we all are. We all are. I am. 
in moments when maybe I should stand up for the word of God, yet I just don't. Another question. Do others know who you follow? Or are you a secret Christian? Just want to go under the radar? I don't want to hear, I, I don't want to offend nobody. Do you know that not proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, hiding yourself from others due to an embarrassment or offense of Christ, is rejecting his message? Or let's just say on the flip side, maybe you're someone that is investigating Christ right now. And when you hear about Jesus, it's all hoopla. It's all fairies in the sky. You've reasoned Jesus and came to a conclusion literally saying Jesus is BS. Literally reasoning away Jesus in your life. You see, Jesus responds in verse 4 to this hostility towards him. In verse 4, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You see, Jesus is saying here, um, he's actually um, relating himself with the prophets, okay? And what he's saying here is that the prophets of old, the Old Testament, they rightly deserved honor. Yet when they went to their hometown to proclaim that God's judgment is coming, lest you turn from your sin in repentance and turn to God, God would give grace and mercy. When the prophets would proclaim this news, the people didn't want to hear it. They enjoyed much more living for the world than living for God. And in the same way, these people that the prophets spoke to tried to kill the prophets. And Jesus is like, it's the same thing happening again. See, Jesus refuses at the end of this verse, in verse five we see, um, he refuses to do great things around unbelief. In verse five, we see that Jesus leaves the synagogue. And I'm only guessing he's hurt. Maybe even heartbroken. Because these weren't just random strangers. These are family members that deliberately reject Jesus and try to kill him. So I, I imagine that Jesus is hurt here. And we have no record after Jesus actually leaves Nazareth, uh, Nazareth that he ever even comes back. So Jesus leaves and never comes back. And it says here that Jesus could not do a mighty work there except that he, held, uh, he healed a few people. Now I want to get something on a straight here. It's not that the lack of their faith 
hindered Jesus's power. Therefore, um, Jesus was unable to do anything there. That's not what happened here. It's because we also see during this text is that he healed a few people. But the question we need to ask is, is this, why would, why would Jesus demonstrate his powers uh, to those that completely rejected him? Why would he? You see, the circumstances that was going on right there, by which God, the Holy Spirit, would not unleash uh, his power among those that have been rejecting Jesus and holding Jesus up for contempt. You see in verse 6, um, Jesus is actually amazed by something here. And it's one of the only times that we see that Jesus is amazed by something. Jesus is amazed by unbelief. It says he marveled at it. There's something that amazes the king of the universe. Unbelief. You see, because this unbelief, it might start small, but it grows. And what Jesus marveled at was the depth of their callousness. The depth of their hardened hearts. The stiff necked. And this unbelief would grow to hostility. And this hostility turned to hate. And this hate turned to a full-on rejection of Christ. Jesus marveled at that. So I have a couple questions or a couple things I want us to consider this morning, okay? The question isn't why was Jesus amazed by unbelief? The question we should be asking is why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? Despite overwhelming evidence of who Christ was, they couldn't believe that Jesus was Christ. They couldn't believe that he was the Son of God. You see, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 22, it says, For what can it be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Uh, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they have uh, so they are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him for they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools oh that hurts and then it goes on in verse 25 they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They would la rather live for the world. So to answer this question, why did they reject Jesus with such overwhelming evidence? is this. And we actually can find this in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
in John chapter 3. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, those that are rejecting God are not rejecting God out of compelling evidence, whether they tell you or not. I'm sure we've had conversations with people. I'll see it when I believe it. That's not compelling evidence. But they are rejecting God because they are blind. They cannot see God even though God has demonstrated his power and grace and mercy throughout the world, his power throughout creation. You see, we cannot choose God. He's the one that reveals to us who he is by way of the Holy Ghost. We can't change our heart and we can't open up our eyes. Remember that song? Um, For I was blind but now I see. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to even see Jesus. Only by the way of the Holy Spirit can we even perceive what truth is. And only by Jesus we are saved and reconciled to the Father. Literally, quite literally, all of salvation is based upon God. Which could bring out a great beauty and a great terror. God is the orchestrator of salvation. And there's a couple things I want us to consider here. Through this text. Um, The first thing to consider is this. When we look at this text, when we follow Jesus, we may be rejected by uh, friends and family because of our faith in Jesus. But not only that, not because the message is offensive, but they will reject us by them considering our past. Let me kind of... Uh, explain this. A preacher in the 1800s by the name of Philip Brooks once said uh, about this text this, okay? Uh, Familiarity breeds contempt. And this works on two levels. You see, we might be rejected uh, by others because people will remember your past and hold you in contempt because they knew what kind of person you were before you followed Christ. Has anyone experienced that? Who are you? Following Jesus? Ah. Following Jesus is just a cover-up. I know who you are. The truth is, following Jesus is a cover-up. We follow Jesus because we know he'll cover us of our sins. See, they're not wrong completely. And those people that reject you for your past, 
um, we're not denying that our past is a part of us. But we are saying that yet our past is a part of us and yes, we have, done, we have all in this room have done dark things, but we have been made new in Christ. We've been made new in Christ. There's a little example here. Um, there was a man in the early, early 1900s that wrote um, this. Uh, he used to hang out, or I used to hang out in brothels, but yet came to know Christ. And as I was walking down the street, my old friends came to me and tried to entice me to come over with them. They didn't understand why I was rejecting this. They felt like I was rejecting them. They badgered me. They tugged on my shirt to come with them to the brothel. With nothing else to do, I ran and screamed, not I, not I. What he was proclaiming was that he knew where he came from. He knew the sin that plagued him. And yet, his past did not define him anymore. Not I. This is not me anymore. And now Jesus defines him. We may be rejected because people will view our past and hold you up for contempt. But you are now a new creation in Christ. And then on the flip side of this, we can be so familiar with Jesus, like the people in the synagogue. Maybe you were raised up in the church. Raise a hand, anyone raised up in the church? Maybe you're raised up in the church. But you're so familiar with Jesus. Jesus' word holds no conviction anymore. His miracles no longer astonish. And his death on the cross no longer strikes a chord of amazement. You see, I've been told one time, a few different times, I don't like how we take communion every week because it dulls the meaning. That's not a, our issue. That's a heart issue. There's weight. Have you been so captivated by just the ins and outs of Christianity? Oh God, but have never actually, your heart hasn't just broken for Christ. You see, familiarity can blind us to the greatness and glory of our Savior if we're not careful. We should never be secure around Jesus. We should never feel comfortable, but always looking to Jesus as how he pulls us out of comfort and calls us to a deeper meeting with himself. You see, today, I pray that we don't view Jesus as less. We don't, are not too familiar with him 
at, at the point of, I know everything about Jesus. He ain't nothing special. But that the Holy Spirit would convict us and put a new fire in our heart for him, a new love and a new desire for him. And it says in the next passage that those that have faith and trust in Jesus will be sent out. Look in verse seven. Uh, we'll point to Jesus sending out the faithful and I'll wrap it up here. But verse seven, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So first thing I want, to note, uh, want you guys to notice is this. Jesus calls people to himself to send them out. It's very common. And so we, we, we tend to think like, oh, I'm gonna be, we're just gonna be buddies, Jesus, yeah, but he's got a mission for you. Do you know that? He calls to send. He calls to send. All throughout scripture, we see that. Jesus is not concerned about your comfort. He's more concerned about the message of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And his primary way to do that is equipping us with the Holy Spirit and sending us out, which is a great privilege, but it can be scary. You see, our response with the message of Christ is to go out, to share the news by loving others, pointing others to Jesus, living in obedience to him. And yeah, that can be frightening sometimes because the world will reject the message. But we don't go alone. We see this in this text. We are given the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to give testimony that the word of God is truth and Jesus is the only way. Jesus empowers us you see, and the faithful, as we get sent out to the world, must trust in God's provision. We see this in verses eight and nine. See, Jesus charges them to take nothing with them. Nothing. No food, no drink, no bag, no money. Complete trust in Christ. Complete trust in God. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that the message of the gospel is not based upon us. You see, it's not based upon our education, how elegant, how eloquent our words are, <laughs> obviously, um, and not based upon our works, but solely on God alone. We trust solely that God will use us, our story, to reach those that are lost by power of the Holy Spirit. That's a great thing. And we have encouragement by that. We are equipped by the Holy Ghost to proclaim truth of Christ. Amen. And if we're rejected, if we're rejected, we have the freedom to walk, walk away. That's what this text also says. Verse 11 and if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, then you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed 
uh, that people should repent. So here we're given this strange res- uh, response to being rejected by sharing the news of Jesus. But we have to kind of go back a little bit to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the Pharisees ordered that when a Jew would leave the holy country for business to unclean lands, when returning back and stepping back into the holy land, they were to remove their shoes, shake off their dust, um, and they were basically saying, the land that I just came from is unclean and I'm stepping back into holy land. And it was a message to the unholy land that God would bring judgment over them. So what's Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying is that there is no neutrality in following Christ. There's only two responses. We either reject Christ or we accept Christ. You see, if we reject Christ this morning, there is no hope. You have to account for your own sins. A judgment is coming. You see, um, can we pull up that next slide? I want us to think of it this way, okay? Yep. Imagine you're standing on a train track, okay? The train is coming. It's coming in fast. If you reject Christ, the train's going to hit you. If you stay in neutral, the train's going to hit you. But if you accept train, uh, if you accept Christ, you will step off of the track. You see, only when our eyes are open can we even see the truth that we're standing on a track. Only until we see the truth, the Holy Spirit gives us the truth of who Jesus is, can we even see that Jesus is actually calling us to get off the track to safety with him. See, the train is coming. And church, that train is the judgment of the Lord upon sin. And whether that judgment of the Lord comes by way of Jesus returning back or that death takes you, it's coming. You see, we don't want to stay on the track. We need to get off the track. But the world beckons us to stay on the track. The track's cool. Ignore the train that's coming. Look at the pebbles on the... Look at the rocks. There's a little vegetation trying to distract you from the truth. It's coming and it's fastly approaching. See, if we don't get off the track, the full weight of God's judgment is placed upon our shoulders. We have offended a holy God. And as a holy God, he must deal what's wrong. Am I right? Like, I want to believe in a God that deals with wrong in this world. That removes sin. The only issue with that is I'm a sinner. 
I can't even move myself off the track. I'm stuck. But yet Jesus calls us off. We have to quit playing around on the track. I know the world's enticing, but the train's coming. And Jesus asks us to turn and run for him for shelter. You see, the question we have to ask today is, have you rejected Jesus in your life or have you accepted Jesus in your life? Second question is, or I would say assurance for you is that if you've been rejected by the world, you've been accepted by Christ. You see, Jesus Christ demonstrates that he took on our sin. So let's go back to the train analogy real quick. The judgment has to be placed somewhere. What Jesus does is remove us off the track and then takes the full blunt of the train. He gets hit hard. And we see that on the cross where his, nail, his hands are nailed to the cross and his feet are nailed. He's put a crown on his head and he's beaten and tortured so that we may be reconciled with the Father, so that we may be made new in Christ. See, church, our best or our encouragement today is what was in John. It's a reminder to us this morning. You see, Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, favor. And in all those that believe in Jesus Christ will have eternity forever. Let's pray. Lord God, help us. Lord God, your love is so great, Lord. It's so hard to even comprehend. Lord God, we praise you. Lord, I just pray that we have a conviction in our own heart this morning, but not only a conviction, but an assurance that yes, we are sinners, but through you we are accepted. We were orphans once, but through you we are sons and daughters. Oh God, we just thank you and we praise you, Lord, this morning. Let our lives display the light of the gospel. Let our works be glorifying to you, Lord. Let every, everything we do be honoring to you, Lord. Help us have a heart that loves others. Have a, help us have a heart that loves you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that this church would not um, be a church that is docile nor stuck in comfort but bold to proclaim the gospel message, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you equipped your people here this morning with the tools they need to go out and share the good news of who you are through 
their lives, that you have called, and each one of each individual in here, you have called them to speak to somebody. And I pray that you put that person in their minds. Lord God, we praise you. And we say all these things in your awesome, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen.